Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is a podcast from Minute Media. So, you know, in the interest of full transparency here and the way I like to do my job, I'll always be honest. I'm always going to be upfront with you. I don't know everything. I give my honest reactions and feelings to what's happening in real time, my assessment. I try to talk to some people. I try to be informed. I try to forecast the future and have takes that hold up and stand the test of time. But occasionally... Like everybody who puts content out into the ether, I look bad and I'm not afraid of my mistakes and I'm not afraid of adapting to new information. And I think with everything that's going on with the Manning cast right now, how it's at the center of the sports media empire, it's what everybody's interested, especially after a great showing last night, the ratings again were really good. Conversation has turned to, is this the future of sports television? Will this eventually replace the regular broadcast. Uh, So what I want to do is I want to, I want to dive in on the Peyton Manning aspect of this. And for a long time when Peyton Manning was interviewing for jobs, I was among those who was loudly banging the drum that it wasn't worth it. And for years and years, I was proven correct. Year after year, we would get the storylines, how Peyton wanted into the booth. But those things would always fall apart, and eventually the season would start. Peyton Manning would not be in a booth. He'd be offered every job under the sun. He would turn it down and would go on our merry way. And at that point, I wondered aloud and in print, as many did, if this is something that he really wanted to do. Obviously, he did not. This all kind of came to a head in March 2018. And I'm looking at a piece I wrote for The Big Lead on March 28th of that year. Uh, So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to rip through it. I'm going to kind of give a live fire Joe Morgan style takedown of my own piece as new information has come in as most of what's been written in there has been proven to be either misguided or not fully understanding the world that I live in. So let's jump right in. So I say broadcasting neophyte Peyton Manning was recently offered not one, but two of the biggest jobs in broadcasting. He turned down both. ESPN wanted him as part of a retooled Monday Night Football booth. Fox pined for his services on its newly acquired Thursday night package. Immense time and energy were expended trying to woo the future Hall of Fame quarterback, even though, from a distance, Manning's heart was never in either project. Like, obviously not into it. And I should say the title of this piece is Wooing Peyton Manning Proves to Be an Enormous Waste of Time and Energy. And honestly, it was pretty well received. I think it was the prevailing thought at the time. I continued, we wake up today in late March knowing the same thing we've known for years. Manning's idealized future is in a front office. His backup plan is likely the state or U.S. Senate. His safety school is shilling for every commercial sponsor who will have him. It's a big oops. That's a hands up. That's on me. I thought that's where his aspirations lied. Year after year of deciding that he didn't want to be part of a booth led me to believe that. Maybe eventually he gets there. He's a smart guy, powerful, connected, not ruling out a run for political office down the line. And you know what? He would win. Just going to go ahead and say it. Peyton Manning runs for president. I think he wins. Would he be good? I don't know. 
subject for another podcast. Those searching for evidence Manning was ever seriously interested in announcing football games faced a tall task. There was no public lobbying and little behind-the-scenes politicking. In fact, there were whispers that Manning was reticent, especially when it came to calling New York Giants games because of his brother Eli. James Andrew Miller revealed on the Sports Illustrated Media podcast that there was a second quarterback Manning also wanted to stay away from for another reason. It's unclear who that was, but here are two guesses, Andrew Luck and Tom Brady. The former because of how Manning left Indianapolis, the latter because the Patriots legend is a challenge to Peyton's legacy. That's a bit of a problem. Now, yeah, well, Eli retired. So did Andrew Luck. Circumstances changed. The Tom Brady stuff. Well, if Peyton, maybe Peyton intended to wait until Brady hung them up. Uh, good luck with that. That dude's playing until he's in his late 40s. Tom Brady may have waited out Peyton Manning on this if that was indeed part of the calculus. Back to the piece. And yet, all indications are that ESPN and Fox were willing to roll out the red carpet for the 42-year-old and the belief they needed someone of his wattage to match the Tony Romo phenomenon. Broadcast can be every bit the copycat league the NFL is, and recently retired quarterbacks are the new Wildcat. Ironically, Romo's incredible first year may have been another reason Manning didn't sign on any dotted line. The constant comparisons wouldn't have been a ton of fun, and he'd be chasing a high bar. We know Manning's affable and a dynamic performer. See his exemplary Saturday Night Live appearances. But most people don't simply walk in and operate at Romo's level. Usually there are some hiccups. Every one of his would be dissected in great detail. And really, they kind of are on a small scale. I think that anybody who watches the Manning cast, who has a background in television, or is familiar with all the work that goes in on the front end, can kind of see the seams. It's not well produced, largely because it's just the two Mannings. Two people tried out for the host role, Kyle Brandt and Mina Kimes, both of whom I think would have been fantastic. And I think that the show would benefit from someone playing quarterback, ironically. But what I didn't understand at the time is it just doesn't matter. And that these two famous people, people want it to be loose, not me. And that's another huge disconnect with this piece. I was not clamoring for Peyton Manning to get in the booth. I didn't think he'd be particularly my cup of tea. And he really isn't. The Manning cast does not do it for me in a way it does for other people. And that's fine. When the game's on, I watch the flagship. That's the way I prefer to consume a game. I don't think Peyton would be awesome as a Tony Romo type paired with a Jim Nance type on Sundays, but he would still draw the same amount of attention. Peyton Manning is really interesting. He's pretty good on TV. He's fun to hang out with from your own couch. Like you're drinking a beer. I get all that He kind of exists on being Peyton Manning alone. And that's good enough. It's not my favorite thing in the world. Other people love it. It's comfort food to them. So when I was writing all this and I was forecasting what was going to happen, I guess I didn't understand. I underappreciated how big of a success he would be immediately. No matter what vehicle he was on, what form it would take. The mistakes and kind of the casualness have proven to be an asset. Doesn't seem like there's a ton of production work going in on that show. We'll see if that changes. In the end, it really doesn't matter because so many people watch it and almost zero care about poking around and inspecting it like the people who are in my field do. Going back to 2018. The dirty little secret here is that neither ESPN or Fox need Manning. Contingency plans for the former include Joe Thomas, Lewis Riddick, and Matt Hasselbeck. The latter could explore Kurt Warner, Jason Witten, or the aforementioned Thomas. Interesting Joe Thomas hasn't really gotten into the broadcast booth in the way that we thought he was going to uh, three years later. 
Manning's VORP over this field would be tempered by the salary demands. Sure, people are drawn to the shiniest object, but it's my belief the main reason people watch football is because it's on television. They'd watch a Steelers-Packers game if the broadcast booth consisted of two minor league guys with no name recognition. Fox and ESPN dodged a bullet. Manning's future has always been as an owner or general manager, and the broadcasting would be a brief detour. They just spent a lot of time and energy to find that out. Woof. Tough one. Yeah. I would love to go into the marketplace of ideas tomorrow with the ESPN dodging a bullet on not getting Peyton Manning. That is not aged well. Uh, Manning is one of the best things that happened to ESPN in the last few years. It's been a revelation. There's no doubt about it. I guess I was stubborn to see it coming. And I overvalued how much people, yes, they want to watch the game, but they want to watch people who they know. They want to watch the people who they were watching for all those years. I get it. I also didn't realize that the world of podcasts would seep so far into the monoculture that essentially the Manning brothers could have a podcast on television, that it could be casual, that it could take this form. Did they pay through the nose and cede all editorial control? It seems over the Mannings and Peyton's production company. Yeah, they did, but damn it. It's uh, it's worth it. Obviously it's going to continue to be worth it. I'm not 100% sure how many new viewers and new fans the Mannings can bring in, but they've already captured a significant enough amount of them that it's almost beyond the wildest dreams of ESPN or Fox or NBC or any network that wanted him. He did it his way. He waited. He took the time. He got in the best situation for him. He's largely insulated from a lot of criticism. There's not that much to criticize. Manning was a lot smarter about this than I was. I didn't understand his leverage position. I didn't understand how special he was as an entity. And how my feelings aside, it would be the biggest coup in the world to get him. So in revisiting where we are at with Peyton Manning, the broadcaster, I've seen enough to know that I was wrong. That wooing him for all those years was not an enormous waste of time and not an enormous waste of energy. Every single second spent working on this has been worth it. I was wrong. Manning's great. You guys all love him. I'll write something tomorrow that'll look good in the moment. Facts will change. Time will change. And you know what? I'm not afraid to admit I missed this one. I was listening to the Dan Lebetard show with Stu Gatz this morning. And the latter mentioned that there's this rare reality right now where Alabama is plus 260 to win the college football playoff. Nick Saban's team already has a primetime blemish against Texas A&M on its ledger. And they've been flying unusually off the center of the radar behind some surprising unbeatens. Likely SEC championship foe Georgia has established itself as the top of the class and could have two shots at eliminating the tide going forward. Alabama has responded from that sting by posting victories by a combined 68 points the past two weekends. Bryce Young is a major talent, and that offense is averaging 45.9 points per contest, which is good for second in the nation. And with all that brings this old familiar feeling of wondering if after a few months of chaos, we're trending towards the creeping inevitability of another ring for Saban's murderer's row. And the thought that these are very attractive odds with which to purchase the sports all-time hunted. Alabama has winnable games at home against LSU, 
New Mexico State, and Arkansas remaining. None is talented or consistent enough to inflict even a sobering scare. The season closes with the Iron Bowl in Auburn's territory. Though Bo Nix loves to rise to the moment, it would be a strong shock if the march to repeat ends there. Then, presumably, there'd be a date with Kirby Smart's Bulldogs, who may not even need to win in order to secure a berth in the playoff. Predicting the level of competitiveness this far out is understandably specious, but there is an event horizon where the hungrier team asserts itself and gives the conference two entrants into the Final Four. And what could Alabama meet there? Perhaps not Georgia again. Perhaps it's Ohio State. The Buckeyes sport the top-scoring offense in all the land, and they'll go as high as C.J. Stroud cares to climb. Cincinnati, they've won football games, and they wait the opportunity to prove it against the Blue Bloods. Oklahoma, they have their obvious shortcomings. You think about all this and how this year was supposed to be different and how it's felt different with all the surprising results. It's not unreasonable, though, to think that Alabama is the second best team in the country right now and they will continue to raise their ceiling. All the twists and turns could end in a routine destination. If so, we'll wonder how we didn't see it coming. Better to get prepared right now. All right, and now as we bring in Chris Vanini, he covers college football for The Athletic. He's also a Michigan State grad. And I think that you could make the argument that this is the most anticipated Michigan-Michigan State game of the last 30 years, possibly ever. I guess I want to start really basic. What's your honest gut feeling about this game? My, my feeling about this game is that typically when Michigan and Michigan State are both really good, Michigan State usually wins that game. That's just kind of how it's been for the last, 20 or so years going back to 1999 when it was Plaxico Burris against Tom Brady that ended up being a really good game that that MSU won they were both teams were good in 2011 and MSU won both teams were at the time pretty good in 2010 and MSU won 2015 that was college game day they were both top 15 I think at the time in, in MSU won so for whatever reason MSU typically does better in this game when when both teams are pretty good basically if MSU is good they do well in this game and through seven games, they seem to be pretty good. I don't know if either of these teams are top 10 teams talent wise, but it's a weird season. So we end up with these two teams ranked in the top 10. I've kind of come to the point with this Michigan state team where I'm, I'm done being surprised when they do something well. Uh, It does kind of feel like everything's falling in place for this to be a season of destiny uh, for them to far outplay their potential win a few close games, get to 11 wins, maybe. It's super weird. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of chaos. So considering all that and considering how I think that Michigan has looked good but has looked beatable, right, at Nebraska, the line has really scared me. It feels like some sort of psych op because Mm -hmm. it just doesn't make any sense to me why Michigan would be favored this significantly on the road what do you make of the line and am i right to feel a little bit of concern because before i saw the line i was feeling pretty good as a michigan state alum well yeah i mean think back to the nebraska game and the line was a lot closer than people thought and nebraska ends up probably should have won that game if not for a a shanked punt that msu returned for a touchdown so you know, MSU lines have been not favorable to them this year. The Vegas hasn't quite believed in them. Michigan typically uh, gets gets a lot of money put on them, so the, the lines are often a bit skewed toward Michigan. But what well, last I saw was what, four and a half, and it's on the road, so you factor in three points for that. And it's I, I think it's scary if you're a fan, but honestly, I think there's a lot of MSU fans that like that. They prefer that. They never like, they never, ever, ever like being the favorite. They want to find some sort of disrespect somewhere where someone is not giving the Spartans uh, enough love and being a four and a half point underdog 
to Michigan at home is one way to do it. So honestly, I think more fans are probably relieved by it than if it was the other way around. They'd be scared if, if everyone was picking MSU to win this game. That's just kind of how it goes being a Michigan State fan. Yeah, there is a Rodney Dangerfield effect to combing over everything with a fine-tooth comb, trying to feel where you're not being properly rated. And you're exactly right. I think that that does translate to the football team. And it's kind of a fake thing among the fan bases. But I do, you point out that this program's success has been when they're the doing the chasing as opposed to when they're chased. I mean, I think that like, even when they were really good, they would drop the game against Nebraska, then get up and go and win on the road at Ohio state. So I do think that that edge keeps them mentally sharp. The next question is, is this Michigan state's best team since 2015? Is it the best team since 2010? What do, what do you actually think about the potential and ceiling for this side? Well, the only other contender for 2015 would be that 2017 team that kind of came out of nowhere to go 10 and three. I think they were um, with, with Brian Lewerke. This is it, it's it's comparable to the, to the 2015 team for sure. But that 2015 team was the culmination of three years of Connor Cook, multiple even more years of what was a really strong defense, you know, a Rose Bowl win all building up to that playoff appearance. This team came out of nowhere. They were two and six last year. Um, so I, I think the juries, I, I think we won't be able to fully kind of judge that until we just see more. I mean, we know we didn't know who Kenneth Walker was. We didn't know much about Peyton Thorne coming into the year. So it's, I, I'm not going to put it over the 2015 team because the 2015 team made the playoff. Now I will say, I think that 2015 team was the worst of that three-year stretch. The 2013 team won the Rose Bowl. 2014 team beat Baylor in the Cotton Bowl and had the best offense in school history. And then 2015 got a bit lucky and made the playoff because of the fumbled snap by Michigan, you know, the, the rain game at Ohio State where Ezekiel Elliott didn't get the ball. They got a little bit lucky. So I don't think it's as good as the 2015 team yet, but I also think the 2013 team was probably the best of the bunch over the last decade. Yeah, that's exactly where I'm at with it, too. I think the 2013 team is kind of the blueprint. There was the disappointing loss that year at Notre Dame with the pass interference game, if I recall, and then it was smooth sailing the rest of the way out there. Connor Cook was a sophomore like Peyton Thorne. I believe the year before they were 7-6. and six. I think they beat TCU in one of those Buffalo yeah. so Wild Wing Bulls, whatever it was, whatever the corporate sponsorship was at that time. So it was kind of playing like with found money the entire time. Conversely, Michigan, let's talk about them. I think that this is the quietest I've ever remembered a Harbaugh side being. Now, his story got co-opted, I think, nationally with a lot of pundits wanting to make him the new messiah in the sport. And it obviously hasn't worked out to the level that Michigan would want it to. He's been very successful. There's been a few bad bounces of the football that have made him less successful than he could have been. He's been within a few yards, a few feet of beating Ohio State and going to the playoff himself, I think, in that regards. But this Michigan team is a bit underwhelming because they're not making headlines. But you know what they are doing? They are winning football games. So the same question for the Wolverines. This is their best team since... The, the the early Harbaugh years, I mean, that they they go to the Orange Bowl, that 2016 team that nearly made the playoff. I think they were short by an inch against Ohio State. It, it's it's not on the level of those early Harbaugh teams because this team doesn't. It, it hasn't been explosive on offense, and it hasn't been elite on defense. Like like they've been good on defense. They've been solid. Last year was a complete disaster. But those early Harbaugh teams had some of the best defenses in the country. I don't think that's the case either. They've just been really solid and they've done what they've needed to do. And that's kind of what Harbaugh's tenure is. He's he wins the games he's supposed to almost always. And he loses the games he's supposed to. He didn't have a he, he didn't have a single win as an underdog until this year, the Wisconsin game. And I think you know, they were like a one point underdog or something like that. So that's kind of been his MO is everything kind of goes according to plan. And that's what's happened this year. They haven't played anybody all that great. They've won all the games they're supposed to, and they've been pretty solid doing it. And that's that's hard to do in college football. Like that, that's harder than you would think to get college kids to be 
you know, so consistent at that level. The running game is, is really good this year, but um, it, it's, it's, it's again, hard to tell based on some of the opponents. They don't have a quarterback who's being hyped up as a Heisman candidate, potentially. If anything, Cade, Cade McNamara has been criticized more than he's been praised because he just he hasn't been asked to do a whole lot. And then, the, again, the defense has been solid. So though that, you know, that 2015 to 2018 era of Harbaugh, I'd put this team probably behind those. But we'll find out, you know, the rest of the season now with Ohio State, Michigan State, Penn State on the schedule, what exactly this team is. Yeah, I think that they're closing the gap with Ohio State um, ever so slightly. I think that him retooling and going with a youth movement in terms of the coaching staff and trying new things, getting away from the Don Brown uh, blitzing every single thing, uh, taking all those risks, I think was a really smart thing to do. I don't think that Harbaugh gets enough credit for adapting. He's such, such a hard person to quantify and qualify and come up with like a hot take or a definitive take about because it's exactly like you said he kind of does what he needs to do he falls short when you expect him to fall short and that's just not really a sexy take on someone who wins 75 percent of their football games in a tough conference and then loses to arguably the second best program in college football every single year as most teams would do Uh, I kind of want to get a little bit personal here and and talk about like, what do you think makes this rivalry so unique in the college football landscape and what makes it special to you? I don't know if it's even in the top 10 nationally, if you were to sit down and make a list about the best rivalries year in, year out, but ever since Michigan state's resurgence to being a contender for a big 10 championship year in and year out. And that's largely been going on for about, 15 years right now this is about as good as it gets it's always a marquee game there's some genuine animosity here but the sticking point is that Michigan obviously has a larger rival in Ohio State so I grew up as a Michigan fan ended up going to Michigan State and I think the way I'd always phrase it is Michigan would rather beat Ohio State but they'd rather not lose to Michigan State the, the, the losses to Michigan State hurt more because you have to hear about it every day. It, it, it's it's the difference between an in-state rivalry and an out-of-state rivalry with anything in college football. You know, you go to school, you go to work with Michigan and Michigan State alums anywhere in the state. And, and, and that's just, it's just a different level of animosity. And when it comes with a place like Michigan, which takes pride in, you know, a level of arrogance, um, you know, academic wise for a long time, football wise, uh, it creates that, you know, that the way Mike Hart put it was the big brother, little brother mentality. And that's just, there's a different level of, 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 of hatred and disrespect there, as opposed to Michigan and Ohio state where they were, they respect the hell out of each other. Like they know that in not recently, but for a long time, they knew that the two of them were the best. And there, there was a, there was a sense of respect and understanding there while it was more in the in the mud when it comes to Michigan State and and sometimes that's not good I I mean sometimes that's a problem as we've seen with both schools having various you know scandals going on in the universities and the way fans handle it in a very gross way Um, but yeah it, it, it where I would put it college football is I haven't been to every college football place I wouldn't know but I do think Michigan Michigan State is the most underrated rivalry in college sports because everybody nationally knows about Michigan, Ohio state, and they don't think about Michigan, Michigan state as much. But then when you have so many top 20 matchups between these teams over the last 15 years, and you see Michigan state going to the playoff and you see the way the games, the way some of these things have ended, the way that Jalen watch Jackson play remains a meme six years later. Uh, I, I think a lot more people have realized now what, um, what this rivalry is. Yeah. And I have an interesting way of approaching it. I think, because like you, I did grow up a Michigan fan early, about through Charles Woodson. Uh, I, I actually kind of think that the Michigan game is the best thing about the Michigan State football program, or at least it was for a long time. I thought that was the one day they had to be really relevant because growing up, it's not as though MSU was a football powerhouse. It's not as though they were ever contending to go, go to the Rose Bowl. 1987 was the last time they went before 2013 
it was kind of like it was the one chance to ruin the season. And there was there's always been the level of disrespect coming from the Michigan side. And I think that's kind of where the larger growth of finding disrespect was planted for Michigan state fans. Cause they've had to live with it their entire life in state. And then yep. they just extrapolated out. It's everybody against us when initially it's just Michigan is, is, you know, kind of like looking down its nose at, at us as they should, because they were the better program for a long time, the better academic school, the older thing, it makes a lot of sense. The, the big brother, little brother, there was great offense taken to that in terms of winning, but it is true like organizationally and culturally, that is kind of the way it is in the state of Michigan. So I always thought it was an amazing opportunity as a measuring stick. And it my, always my, my, yeah, Mike Hart went four and zero against MSU. He can say whatever he wants. Oh, absolutely, you, you, absolutely. You, you, like, 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 D'Antonio got really upset about it, and it literally sparked and fueled the entire program for fifteen years. But at the same time, he was right at the time. That that was that was six straight wins at the time. I think when 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 Mike Hart said that back in two thousand seven, um, and that was his last game uh, against that. So he could he was right to say that, and MSU was right to to get motivated by it. And, uh, and, and here we are now. I was there for five falls and I did not see Michigan State win a single game over Michigan. But I really think that that excitement still exists where it's a chance, you know, it's going to ruin them in a way. Like you said before, they do not want to lose this game. They want to win the Ohio State game. And I think that was a brilliant way to say it because I've never really thought about it in those terms. But they lose to Michigan State. It stings extra. And it had it was the opportunity to make the season for the Spartans for so long. And now it's almost like not only can it make the season, because I think speaking as a fan here, a win against Michigan, a loss against Ohio State, and maybe a close loss against Penn State and going 10 and 2, that's still a wildly successful year. Conversely, losing it is going to be like, oh, it kind of feels like a giant wasted opportunity. You Got your start in journalism working at the State News, which is the student paper at Michigan State. And uh, though I am not a State News alum, I was in the journalism program there. And that's where I first encountered your work. I always read who's covering the team for the student paper because I think, number one, it's an awesome opportunity. Number two, it's great to see like the new crop of people. How did that job while juggling your other responsibilities and your desire to have fun as a college kid, how did that prepare you for your career? I had no idea what I was doing in writing until uh, I, I joined the state news. I don't know why I got hired because it's, it's a pretty, you have to apply to get in. It's not, it's not like anybody can write for it. And my first, I, I wrote a little bit in high school for the student newspaper, the teacher who ran the paper, my second year was basically like, yeah, maybe you don't need to do this. <laughs> I, I wasn't very good. And so my first year, I, I didn't know what, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So it's like, I like writing. How about, how about sports writing? So I did just a couple things for a small web student run website as a freshman, then found out, Oh, to write for the state news, you have to apply. So my, my sophomore year I applied and I got on what, what, what is basically an internship. You, you spend two weeks on every desk in the newsroom your first semester. I don't know. I, again, I don't know why Matt Bishop hired me. I had almost no experience. There were several writers uh, in my intern class that were high school, like star writers. And mm -hmm. so I sit down my first day at the state news and they hand me a press release. And they're like, all right, write a story about this food drive. I was like, do I, do I just like call them and ask, what, what do I do? I had no idea what I was doing. So, so they, you know, rip my thing to shreds and rebuild it up and make it into a story. And I had such a good group of older writers and editors there over my three years there, people who went on to work on for a lot of really good places. The, 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 the paper won what's called the pacemaker award. It's like the, the top student newspapers win what's win a pacemaker we had won that many years in a row by the time I got there. So there were really, really smart student writers ahead of me who helped help me shape stories, understand how this all works. I, everything I know I learned in those three years there and, and, you know, spending a year, 
spending a semester covering student government and, and some of these weird things really help cover sports in the end. And I, I always recommend that to people who want to be sports writers is spend some time, you know, on your student paper covering something else too, like not just the football or basketball team, cover the volleyball team, cover, you know, state city government or, or something like that. So uh, I ended up doing that for three years, covered the football team for one year, covered the basketball team for two, sports editor for one, but uh, yeah, that was the maybe the most enjoyable and um, helpful experience of, of my life was, was working at the state news. I think what it gives people is as someone who did not have that experience, I basically had to take those lumps and learn those lessons. I feel like in the real world. And for me, that was at the Chicago sun Times, So a large outlet, I felt like the pressure was very high there. Many days I felt really stupid, right. And being thrown into the deep end with more pressure of actually getting paid, you know, there's no substitute for actually doing it. Um, right. and, and I think that's the biggest thing. And that's one of my biggest regrets about my time there is I didn't capitalize in my opportunity to jumpstart my career and learn those lessons. Like you said, it, it, doing the stuff that's not necessarily sexy that you might not necessarily want to do. Like, like you said, going to a, a zoning board meeting, but you learn to do like in the football terms, like the blocking and tackling of storytelling and getting facts correct. So you're not, if you are lucky enough to get like an opportunity out of college, you're not learning on the job. And I think that like, if I'm an employer, I'm looking at someone who has that experience because, you know, a lot of the people, a lot of the best journalists that I know, they didn't go to college or they didn't go to college for journalism, but they were self-taught. They learned it by doing it. And that's really the only way to do it. So I think that it's, I think that it's awesome that you embrace the opportunity. There's a real difference between people who want to do it to see their name in the paper and people who want to do it to make themselves as a more rounded journalist. I don't know if that was your long-term goal, but it seems like you were able to recognize almost immediately. It sounds like the potential and the opportunity that was being afforded to you. Yeah. I, I mean, like Michigan state has a really good journalism school. Um, but I, I learned everything I learned in school from the state news, because like you said, it was just, it was doing the real thing. It wasn't doing it for a, a, a class. And, you know, if you're in a journalism school, it's, it's important. You can make connections that way. You can learn a lot of um, tools and skills that way. Like I learned how to do, you know, use flash and InDesign and stuff like that. I, I learned through journalism school, but at the end of the day, you have to go out and actually do it somewhere. And when, when I was a student there, that was, early 2010s so that was right when social media blew up and i was kind of that in between because all those really really good writers who were above me that i mentioned they all went into newspapers because that's just what you did and the the, the state news shrunk when i was there and it became really clear that you know digital media is probably the future and the way to go i started the i i ran the twitter accounts for the sports desk of the paper for a long time and um, sometimes other writers thought it was weird how much I was using Twitter and on Twitter and stuff like that, like the, like the Lansing state journal writers. Um, but now they're all, now that's just the world we live in now. So, you know, it, it was a, it was a great opportunity to experiment and find out what works and what doesn't. And the tools that they have there from podcasting to design to whatever, um, you know, use, use those tools because when you're on your own and you don't maybe have the money to have a nice studio or something like that, like anybody who's in college, if you can do your student newspaper, if they have tools and resources available, figure out how to use them, you know, because they're at your disposal there and they may not be there for, for a while. So that's kind of what I got out of working at the state news as opposed to simply just journalism school. What are the things you did after school that attracted the attention of the athletic? What were the steps in between graduating and getting a job covering college football for the athletic? Well, I was doing an MLB.com internship covering the Detroit Tigers in 2011. So that continued into the fall after I graduated. I did some freelancing work for a local paper to, to write about Michigan State. But then after that, um, things kind of dried up and I was doing some you know, part-time blogging jobs and a mix mismatch of a lot of different things. I actually spent several months um, 
working at a Dunham's sporting goods store just to get some money somewhere. And eventually I got onto SB nation's news desk back when that was the thing. And I had been doing some of their Michigan state blog as well. And through that news desk, I found on a, on a, on a, on a, a job board, something called coachingsearch.com, which I was kind of familiar with. Just, I, I'd heard about it before. And it was this new site from a guy who was starting a site to cover coaching changes. And he liked that I had done news desk work at SB Nation. That was the kind of thing he wanted. So he hired me to be a part-time assistant writer to him about a week before my wedding. So it was nice to tell people at my wedding that I had a job. Within a couple months of that, uh, coaching search, it had been going well that he elevated me to full-time and uh, did that for a couple of years with him. And then he went on to become a, a coach's agent and handed me the keys to the site. So I ran coaching search. I was with coaching search for five years, ran it on my own for two years. And that was a time where, you know, I wasn't making a lot of money, but I was making so many sources by talking to coaches and other people and stuff like that. And I applied for a lot of jobs at a lot of places and barely got interviews, SB nation, all, all kinds of stuff. Um, and I was, you know, not sure I was working 24 seven. I was just thinking, Hey, you know, I'm not blogging for some big name site, but Hey, I, I know these coaches and whenever that next job comes, I'll have, I'll have this to, to, to use. But then in spring 2017, ESPN, Fox, Yahoo, everybody just lays off all their writers. Right. And everybody pivots to video college sports, especially gets hit big. And so then I'm thinking, well, shit, what, what am I even working toward now? What is my dream job? Does it even exist anymore? You know, when Stuart Mandel and Bruce Feldman get let go by Fox, what is left? And Stu and Bruce were big fans of coaching search because I had the, the coaching ticker. It would update every day throughout the day with the latest coaching news. It became a place for a lot of national writers to just keep track of all the moves going on. So, so I, I knew them over Twitter. They liked the site. And so when everything goes down, I reached out to students just like, Hey man, you know, just want to know if you have any career advice, you know, given kind of the state of things now. And he said, he said, okay, I'm, I'm going on a vacation here, but when I get back, I'll, I'll give you a call back and we can talk. And so a few weeks go by and he reaches out and he says, I, I know you wanted some career advice, but I might have a job for you. The athletic is start the, the site called the athletic, which was just in like four cities at the time they're starting a college football site. And, you know, we'd like you to be a part of it. Come do the coaching stuff that you do, do it, do it here. And so that was, that was my break. I mean, I was thinking I might go one more year of coaching search and then get out because it was just working myself so hard. It's, you know, it, it, I figured, you know, it wasn't going to pay off at some point and, and I had to do something that would make me more money eventually. Um, so that was the break. Stu just reached out because he liked my work at coaching search and it was right place, right time. And that's what that's a, that is so much of what makes this business is just being lucky. You know, you got to put yourself in position to be lucky. You know, I worked 24 seven for five years, but sometimes you get the right call at the right time at the right place. And, and that just happened to me after, after years and years of, of not being in that right spot. Well, coaching search, obviously you were mapping out the landscape in terms of opening jobs, what, what jobs could come free. And it was comprehensive, right? Like, I think there's a focus and especially now, like if you, you've noticed how you mentioned in 2017, where college sports were hit really hard by layoffs, you can kind of see it in terms of like the national outlets right now, there's barely even co any college football content to consume, right? Like for us all to consume, like on ESPN, on FS1, stuff like that. And so they're only going to hit the heavy hitters, the things that are going to move the needle. You were taking a comprehensive approach and you were doing the work and it was a specific angle and you were able to differentiate yourself, right? And it was that one very specific thing that you threw yourself in, that you took care with that you treated as the only thing. And that way you were able to establish and, and you were able to establish yourself and stand out, right? And it, you were able to like attract people who could eventually maybe offer you a, a, a carrot in the future. So I think that's a testament to like 
finding something that you can do that's different. That's been a constant challenge for people in this industry for a long time, right? And we face it every single day, like with the site that I have, like we are what we are. Let's do the things that make us different. Let's have writers be able to write basically whatever they want. Let's not have the same take that everybody else is doing. Let's at least try to like have some personality and some life to it because that's kind of the thing that's gonna separate us from the rest of the field. And you learn at a certain point to kind of like lean into that. And I think your time with The Athletic too, I would say that you've kind of established a few specific beats. I wanted to hit on your focus on, I don't know, I'm sorry, I don't know the politically correct term anymore for group of five teams. What is it? It's group of five. I tried to make mid-major a thing, but nobody went for it. So it's group of five. But how would you describe the opportunities and the challenge of kind of like hitting that spot in the market that other people are ignoring. Yeah. That's one of the things I always, one of the advices I always give to young writers is find something that nobody's doing and try to do that. I I mean, coaching search, it sprung off of football scoop because there was a falling out between two brothers. But other than that, there was, there was nobody running the same kind of coaching tracker. So it became a place that people like Bruce Feldman and Stuart Mandel and Dan Wolken and, and people I had to read every day. And so when Stu comes to me, he's about the athletic, he says, we're going to have a writer on all five power conferences. And then we want a writer on group of five because Stu says, I think there's an audience for the group of five in places that aren't being covered. And he was right. I, I mean, as soon as I got the job, group of five schools, you know, are reaching out to me being like, Hey, if you ever need anything, you know, let us know, we can get you this, you can do this. And, and they just, they're craving for some attention. And collectively there are a lot of fans there like who follow multiple teams in a conference or something like that. Like Sunbelt teams will read about other Sunbelt teams or Sunbelt fans will read about other Sunbelt teams. And on the whole, that's a huge part of the fan base. That, that's 50% essentially of all teams. Now the fan fan tolls are not the same, but, but, you know, Stu saw, you know, the, the athletic as a whole started by covering what it thought was undercovered. You know, they went big on group of five. They went big on NHL. They went big on, on, on some places. They thought there was a market inefficiency, I think is the right term or whatever, but, but there was a, a hunger for that kind of coverage. And I've been here doing this for five years and the numbers, the subscriptions, everything's still going up. Like there's still new people who, who want to read that kind of stuff. And I know ESPN and SI and everybody, and even my colleague, Andy Staples, you know, he, he's said it before a lot of times. He said it when he was at SI that, you know, the reason we write about the same 25 teams is because those get the most page views and, and they do. That's also why the athletic model is a bit different. And you can bring people in through the group of five when you have everything else to offer too. So I don't know if a group of five beat writer would necessarily work at a place where clicks are the only thing that matters. So that's why the athletics business model with covering something that's undercovered, you can, you can develop a trust there from, from, from readers who know that, you know, there are people who care about the other 65 teams that are in FBS college football. Last one here. What's the best part of your job? Is it in some way introducing people to players and teams that are worthy of their attention and their excitement? As it relates to covering group of five, I like, I like covering stuff that most people aren't paying attention to. Like everybody writes about Alabama and Ohio state, and it's gotta be so hard to find a new fresh angle and get the availability and stuff like that. Like I wrote today about San Diego state's punter. He has two 80 yard punts this year. He had a 53 yard field goal last week. He's on pace to smash the NCAA punting record. And unless you're really paying attention to the mountain mountain West, you may not have seen him. So like, that was a really fun story to write. And the story's, at the moment, it's Wednesday morning. Story's got 59 retweets already. You know, right after it, uh, right after it came up. So yeah, I like just kind of writing about teams and people who maybe don't get enough attention, and and because they don't, are you know more than willing to open up and stuff like that. Like a lot of Group of Five coaches have no problem with you sitting in on a meeting, and and kind of because because they need that they need that pub, but they also trust you and 
and they know you're not going to give out a secret player or something like that. It's just, it's a, it's a fun relationship to um, just kind of tell stories that, that I think are, are not, uh, are not told elsewhere. Now from a national perspective, obviously these schools, these group of five schools have local beat writers and they do a great job, but just from a national perspective, I don't know if anybody was going to write about the San Diego state punter, but he's pretty fun to watch. And now I think a lot more people might pay attention to him. Well, it sounds like I have a piece to spike. Uh, we were planning on rolling that out this afternoon, but you know, credit to you for getting it first. <laughs> That's Chris Vanini covers college football for the athletic. Am I going to, am I allowed to get a prediction for Saturday? Are you in the prediction business? I haven't made a prediction yet, actually, but I mean, I'll say that with the four, with the 4.5 points that Michigan's getting, I think I'll pick MSU to cover. If, if that's, if that's okay to say. Yeah. Same. I'm not going to make a prediction on the money line, but I will say that a cover uh, seems like the smart play. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate your work um, and looking forward to seeing what you do in the future, man. Yep. Thanks for having me, man. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.